Hello everyone, Joshua Gilliland here, live in San Diego with Steve Chu. We're both exhausted after an amazing day at San Diego Comic Fest. <laughs> Steve, did you have fun today? Oh, it was a ton of fun. Lots of fun, a great day, great programming, great law students. So we had a really great turnout for our Mandalorian mock trial. And uh, Steve and uh, his amazing wife Kathy did most of the heavy lifting and coaching and mentoring the law students uh, and we'll post the audio from that mock trial separately and we'll talk about that in a little bit more depth separately uh, but we're going to catch up on the last two episodes of Star Trek Picard which include the episodes The Impossible Box and Nefertiti I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And a lot of fun. So we're going to do some high-level issue spotting and talk about the legal issues from both. And because uh, it's nice we're actually in person. Uh, and after a full day of adventure, uh, doing what we do, talking about all the geek stuff we love. So first up, the impossible box. And my first note is, Agnes is a killer. She just flat out murdered Bruce Maddox. And we might, let's go back to that after we start talking about episode seven. We have the exchange between uh, Picard describing his feelings on the Borg, and that's Borg don't change, they metastasize. We learn that there is a treaty between the Federation and the Romulan Free State, or whatever government the Romulans have now. We see Rafi uh, continue to burn bridges uh, in order to get Picard's uh, credentials to go to the Borg Cube. And there's some uh, important self-reflection. So let's talk about these first issues. And uh, we left off last time thinking, like, Agnes looked like she really intended to murder Maddox. Do you, are your feelings on that still the same? <laughs> well, I, I would say that um, Agnes needs a pretty good criminal defense lawyer here because she's she's going to be in some trouble. Uh, you know, just um, narratively and thematically, you know, within the story, she comes across in the beginning as just a very uh, charming, likable character. You know, we love her. She's terrific. She's very unassuming, no airs, no arrogance, even though she's one of the one of the foremost cybernetic minds on Earth. Um, but it, we had discussed this on earlier episodes. You know, is she some sort of Manchurian candidate? And, you know, we weren't too far off on that. <laughs> no. You know, I, I, <laughs> right. <laughs> not at all. Right. She's not being controlled. And I think that's pretty clear because when we hear her dialogue, uh, what she says to Bruce as she's essentially pulling the plug on him, she's saying, you know, I, I need forgiveness for what I'm about to do. Uh, I wish I had not seen what I have seen. So what we've really got here is her kind of giving her side of the story, essentially laying out a justification type of defense for I don't want to kill you, but I have to for the greater good. I mean, this is the classic ends justify the means type of thing. Uh, how does killing Bruce you know, make things better? Uh, we are led to believe at least that if synthetic life is allowed to you know, survive or thrive, that many bad things will happen. So... Even she, a person who has worked much of her life to create synthetic life, um, has now been convinced that 
they can't do this. You know, the, drawing a parallel from another universe would be in, in Terminator 2, Miles Dyson learns that his creation will eventually lead to the creation of Skynet and the downfall of the human race. And then he turns around and says, I have to destroy my creation, sort of like my Frankenstein. Uh, and Agnes Gerardi has apparently had that sort of revelation, which leads to her killing Bruce Maddox. So back to kind of the initial point, how do you defend her? I don't think insanity is, is, is really a possibility, not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect. That's going to be tough because she clearly knew what she was doing. She's almost apologizing to him as she's doing it, you know? Yeah, this was more of an execution. It's, yeah. you're guilty of making synthetic life and we're just killing you now because he's not being blamed for the Mars attack. He's not being accused of any crime. She's just killing him. Yeah. And, you know, maybe we'll get a better idea with episode eight on what exactly she saw and all the, well, we'll, we'll save that for a discussion of episode seven in just a couple of minutes, but it's clearly not looking good for her. She's, I mean, for those who like shipping, yeah, she does take Rios to bed and well, good for him, but um, he's at least insightful enough to go like, hey, something's up because now you're throwing yourself at me. Right. And uh, while he was running around playing uh, football. And yeah, he is cool, but more on, more on that in a minute. You know, another thought on Gerardi, you know, I think as a viewer, we are meant to sympathize with her. You know, the fact that, oh, she doesn't want to kill Bruce Maddox. She's crying as she does so. She's telling you that, you know, she's reluctant, but she's steely in her resolve that this is something she's got to do. So does that make it any better? I mean, I don't know. What do you think, Josh? No. It, it's, okay, if making synthetic life is a crime, it's not a death penalty offense. You know, he didn't do anything that justifies being executed. Right. Okay, and the Federation <clears throat> doesn't execute people. So there's that. There's also the fact that what evidence do we have that synthetic life is dangerous? You know, a mind meld's not admissible. So what, you know, and that gets into the next episode, right. but what did O exactly show her? Yeah. You know, we're not talking control from Star Trek Discovery. And with the past, uh, up until the Mars attack, you know, Commander Data was a hero. And, yeah. so, and so he had different issues of bigotry, but... If there had been a profound fear of synthetic life, that ban would have been in effect in the 22nd century or 23rd, you know, to keep that from happening. Just as the eugenics wars bore the prohibition on uh, genetically modified people that had been in place for a couple hundred years. So it just, that doesn't make sense because... What's to gain by killing Maddox? Right. It's you're gonna say like, hey, we don't want you to make synthetic life anymore because you could kill us all. Okay, that's a discussion point. That's not a reason. Right. It's like that's like saying like, hey, everyone who's uh owns a winery and making wine, we're just gonna take them out back and shoot them because that's how we're gonna stop drunk driving. No, that's not yeah. how that works at all. Uh, you know, using the uh, a criminal law kind of um, uh, analogy here, 
what we've got really is the difference between intending the conduct versus intending the result. Mm -hmm. You know, Bruce Maddox intends to create synthetic life, something that has only been done once before by Dr. Noonien Soong, um, who created data, and data became just such a valuable member of Starfleet. So, you know, we look at it as a real positive thing. And of course, we have the flip side of the coin, the e evil brother lore, um, who was, uh, as far as we know, dealt with. But, you know, there's tr tremendous benefits here to synthetic life that we, we already know about. So that's what he intends. But let, let's just assume for a moment that where we, go, where we are going with the Zadvash is that if synthetic life is allowed to exist, some horrible things will happen. Well, I think it's fair to say that Bruce Max certainly did not intend for those horrible things to happen. He just wanted to make some scientific breakthroughs. So, you know, Agnes, if you were to go to trial for the murder of Bruce Maddox, uh, if they were ever able to get some evidence, some testimony, and maybe that emergency medical hologram can testify to something, what he saw, what he heard, perhaps, I, I don't know. I, she'd be in trouble. She, she'd have a tough, tough road to hoe. So hearsay rules don't apply to red light cameras and the reports that you get because they say it's not a statement. That changes dramatically when it's a emergency medical hologram or emergency navigation hologram because now it is a statement. So right. that, that does get interesting fast. Yeah, but, and let's rem remember some of the purposes behind the rules of evidence here. You know, we, we we as sort of like gatekeepers for the evidence, we're always worried about the trustworthiness, the accuracy of the evidence, and we're suspicious about evidence that just can't be verified or tested. So in EMH, I, I don't know that this has been fully analyzed, but um, we're talking about the intersection here between technology and the law, and the difficulty with that is that the growth in technology always outpaces growth in the law. So the law has to catch up to advances in technology. But the question posed, you know, by you, Josh, um, is a very good one. Would an e could an EMH's testimony stand up in court? Would it be hearsay, or could it? Um, would there be an exception? One could certainly argue that there would be an exception that, that the EMH is testifying as a witness and is available, in fact, for cross examination. Mm -hmm. And that's really one of the big tests: is that you know you can't just have an out of court statement, just some written statement, and just introduce it because then the other side can't challenge it they can't question the person oh where were you when you saw this how far away were you was there anything blocking your vision are you sure you heard that could you have heard something else um you know there, there there's nothing to test if it's just a piece of paper but here we have a emergency medical hologram that has some sentience or you know some ability to converse with people so if we go off of what we saw in star trek voyager you know we do have a, you know, a witness, really. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, we do. It's more than a red light camera. Yes. Mm. So, we can delve into just some high-level issues with international law and treaties, but that meant that there was an entity to negotiate with that survived the supernova, and that there's some form of government that the Romulans have. Some successor government, yeah. What, and if it's <clears throat> Romulan Free State, that does sound better than Star Empire. Because yeah. <laughs> anything with Empire in it kind of sounds bad. A little sinister. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, again, a shout out to um, the fantastic book, The Last Best Hope, the prequel to the Picard series. But um, in it, you see how the Romulan Empire handles, the Romulan government handles the supernova. And I, 
I think most fans will be left sort of scratching their heads like, what was the government really thinking? Because, at least in the book, and, you know, spoiler alert here, but um, the Romulan Empire's government essentially looks as if, like, they're just letting the Federation do all the heavy lifting, and they are just trying to suppress the truth that the supernova is even coming, which is just so bizarre, because the government's essentially throwing their citizenry, their people, under the bus. Like, they would rather... Um, stay in control and have everyone die then give up control and save their, save all their people it's, it's bizarre yeah that is weird uh <clears throat> does it touch on spock very briefly okay um and i don't want to say more than that <laughs> okay, we, we, we can discuss that later yeah <laughs> so uh so we do have some introspection with picard because he well he he he's still rightfully traumatized by the Borg, even though he did show insightfulness after uh, first contact. Uh, even though that was a little more fresh, it was what six years had passed, and uh, it's different when you're the captain of the Federation flagship and you have quantum torpedoes at your disposal, <laughs> and you know if you want to go kick butt, you can. So yeah. that's a very different. Uh, I mean, he's more in his prime at that point. You know, he's at the top of his game, as opposed to an old man who remembers something horrible. And, you know, like, uh, like I, I had a granduncle who uh, was a wonderful, warm man, uh, but he was also a World War II vet. And, you know, as he was on his deathbed in those last months, you know, he reverted back to when he was a Japanese POW in the Philippines. Wow. And... My goodness. And so I think he survived the tan, as oh, in the man. death march, but I'm not positive because no one really wanted to talk to him about it because it was really, really traumatic. And the thing that always haunted me was he lived an amazing, wonderful life, uh... My granddad was wonderful. He had wonderful children, wonderful grandkids. And at the end, he reverted back to the pure hell that he endured as a POW. <sighs> Thinking about turning this to a fictional world, you know, Picard you know, did recover from the Borg. You know, but we, as we learned in the prior episode, talking to Seven of Nine, yeah, he's still haunted by it. You know, he's responsible, well, he's not responsible, but Locutus led the Borg attack that killed 11 million people. That's a tough one to walk off at night. So, seeing what we see with him, uh, I don't want to say regressing in his hostility towards the Borg, because I don't think that would ever turn off, given what you went through. But... After he interacts with Hugh, and again, this is the hugging Picard. The Picard of the next generation was not the hugging type of guy. Uh, but, <laughs> but hell, I want a hug from Patrick Stewart because, well, that's the world we live in right now. Well, he's, he's grandpa now, yeah. just remember. You know? <laughs> he's yeah. so warm and nice. Yeah. But again, Jonathan Frakes looks that way too. Yeah, <laughs> true. It's, it's this Gen X, you know, we're huggers now. Yeah. But um, for him to go, the Borg are not victims, they're, are, are victims, not monsters. 
you know, we're talking about Exborg. You know, like, so that's him, Seven of Nine, uh, the kids from Voyager, Hugh, and a whole bunch of other people uh, who, you know, raises this issue of what do they qualify as? Because after they've been reclaimed and they're, you know, XBs, it doesn't seem like they're going back <clears throat> to wherever they came from. They're in this different category, like they can't go home, especially those who are mutilated, because there are a lot of them that, like, are missing eyes that, you know, scar tissue over half the face, where they, you know, literally had an eye removed and implants put in. Yeah. Uh, so it raises issues of, you know, what is their status as, like, are they citizens of anything? Right. Right. Or, do, or does their homeworld consider them dead? So these are just very, very powerful and some very topical um, issues as well. Uh, I would say, you know, the whole Borg um, issue, we can look at it from two perspectives because we've got the perspective from Picard, who is our through character on a lot of these, our viewpoint character. Um, and then we can look at it now through the perspective of the Borg, which is a perspective we have not often gotten mm -hmm. um, in the past. I mean, the only characters we've had have been Hugh, the Borg Queen, um, you know, the drone from the um, the twenty whatever it was, twenty ninth century you know, yeah. from Voyager. Um, you know, brief brief looks uh, from the Borg point of view. But starting from Picard's point of view for a moment. I think the theme here is sort of PTSD and, you know, continuing trauma. How long, if ever, does it take for you one to recover from an experience as traumatizing as being assimilated by the Borg? Uh, you know, we, in season three or season four uh, of Next Generation, the episode Family, mm -hmm. uh, which comes right after Best of Both Worlds Part Two. We get to see Picard heal on screen, and we get to see him carrying not just physical scars, but the deep emotional scars. And he goes back to Labar, France, and spends time with his brother, and really has it out with him emotionally, but is able, through that emotional release, to heal you know, to a great deal, which is great. Um, but we see here in this episode of Picard, when he meets up with um, Seven of Nine, and... I think we are led to believe at least that they haven't really met before, although they know of each other. And she asks him, you know, this is a really a conversation that could only take place between two former Borg drones. Uh, do you feel like you got all your humanity back? And he says, yes. And then she asks it, the question again, slightly differently, all of it. And then he pauses and he says, no, but I'm working on it every day. And just the power, the emotional, um, you know, explosiveness of that, you can just feel it like, wow, you know, can one ever really recover from that? And then when he goes to the board cube now, the first time he's been on a board cube in so, so long, and it all comes rushing back, the fear, um, the helplessness, you know, remembering like all the people, the deaths in which he was complicit. Um, but he's starting to see it from a different perspective now when he sees Hugh. And I, I want to say it really, I found it very, very moving when he sees Hugh and Hugh gives him a hug and there's just this warmth because up until now when Picard has visited old people he has known he's really 
gotten the cold shoulder. You know, Kirsten Clancy, Kirsten Clancy kicks him out, CNC of Starfleet. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> Rafi Musiker tells him to just keep on walking. Um, there's not many people that are very happy to see him. Uh, and yet, here's Hugh, finally. And, you know, they only saw each other a couple times. I mean, key points in their lives. But Hugh welcomes him. And you remember the history. And you remember, wow, the good that Picard has done. I thought that was just a really wonderful moment to see our hero kind of welcomed by someone. Um, I could keep going on here, but did you want to comment on P P sort of Picard's experience? I, I think we've covered it enough, and because uh, we could go on and on. True. J just hitting the quick point, though, how he now sees through Hugh, who shows him what what is being done with the XBs, the former drones, uh, Picard sees them now and realizes, yeah, what are all these former drones going to do? And I think he's he is in the past certainly in Star Trek First Contact. He's seen the Borg as aggressors, uh, as you mentioned, they metastasize, they conquer, they're just evil incarnate. Um, but now he sees these former Borg and he realizes, no, they're not evil. They're actually victims. And what are they supposed to do? And as Hugh says. They're the most hated people, you know, hated beings in the the galaxy. There was also the point that Hugh made about being an advocate. And yeah. that was fascinating to, yes. to see if they do anything with that because they've raised the issue. Right. And for it to be more than just pillow talk, they actually have to do something with right. it. Right. Here, here is a potential role, future yeah. role for Picard. So he can do some good. He doesn't even have to rejoin Starfleet, but he could be an advocate for these people. Um, you know, sort of pivoting slightly then, let's talk about the legal status of these XBs. You know, what are they now? You yeah, know? I... There are a couple ways that that could go. If a government takes the point of view that at the point of assimilation that was death, that they're no longer part of a specific community, that their rights as, say, a citizen of the United States or Federation died at that point. They're then, you know, uh, upon their resurrection, their, you know, reclamation, uh, that they are now something else, that they are, you know, a man without a country, that they want to belong to something but they're not wanted by their homes anymore. And it, it's not like they, you know, the, it's not like a kid from Iowa that went out to San Francisco State and got an art degree. And it's like, well, you're out of the family now. You don't want to be a farmer. And, you know, how dare you, you know, go to a different church and you, know, you have a boyfriend now. How dare you do all those things? <laughs> and it's like, you know, Steve might giggle, but... That was a problem. You know, that, that's why gay people, yeah. prior to marriage equality, tried adopting each other. And in order to have inheritance rights and not have wills be contested. Well, this is just different than, than any other situation. It, it's not like, like, say... Uh, Everyone who had to fight for the German army in World War II 
was disowned by their German families after the war because it was something that everyone in the country went through together and it wasn't like you know they were then outcast right unless of course they were war criminals and then that was a different situation but this is different this is you know it's like I can't think of anything truly comparable <clears throat> To to history, and I and there there might be something. It, it, it's difficult. You're right. It, it's very difficult. Um, are they considered dead? And then what you do when they sort of come back to life? Although they're not exactly what they were before. Uh, another possible comparison to legal status could be that they are hostages. Mm -hmm. You know, they're taken by a sort of enemy state and held and. That made forced to do things you know for those enemies um, a closer analogy would be if people were captured and then made to fight for this enemy state against their former loved ones I can't think of anything that jumps out at me um, that fits that exactly squarely um, but I think that we're probably somewhere in between this sort of hostage status versus you know the death like pow type of status yeah it's one thing to be used to slave labor by the hostile country or to get sent out to siberia you know but it's another thing to be used on the front lines to <coughs> harm your loved ones and yeah. it also raises the issue of national nations abandoning their citizens yeah. so it's like because the world they're not dead they were assimilated and it's again that raises the first contact issue of like you didn't even try instant lynch yeah it's yeah. um totally different um and and on the screen we have the pause moment of Hugh hugging picard and man that is such a look of warmth and love on hugh's face with yeah. that embrace yeah uh, just great that he's he's hopeful again um, I, you know, I'll, I'll just say that uh, for the Borg, we're, you know, the XBs, I think we are in some uncharted territory mm -hmm. because throughout Star Trek canon, it doesn't happen very often that we get Borg drones that escape and then try to get back their humanity or, you know, whatever species they're from. It's explored a little bit more in Voyager. Mm -hmm. You know, certainly Picard was Locutus and he comes back. For all intents and purposes, but it doesn't happen that often. Well, that and Picard lucked out because there's no like implants sticking out of him still. Right. They didn't right. cut off his arm when they put that appendage on. He doesn't have the physical scars that others have. And then when we see in this episode, there are some drones who are just having implants removed. And then uh, you see the one drone who only has one eye left, but when he's able to see himself, he's got this look of pure joy that he's free. Mm-hmm. Um, and which is great. And then the question is, well, now what, right? Yeah, because the military, we we're, we have that policy of we don't forget our MIAs. And you know, look at all the places that have that MIA flag flying. Like, we want those guys back. Yeah. We want to know what happened to them. And again, we are grew up in the 80s, born in the 70s. But you know, let's go count all the movies about trying to find the guys left behind in Vietnam right. that were popular in the '80s. Of let's go back and you know find our boys. Well, what's happening with the XPs is the rejection 
of that mindset because you could say they're, they're not collaborators at least not willingly and I think that the way this would probably be looked at um, legally or diplomatically is these former Borg drones at least the ones we see in this episode I don't know that they could return to their races yeah. or to their governments their countries you know their planets I think in all likelihood the XBs are essentially becoming a new race um, they have more in common with each other than with the species of which they were formerly members. I don't think race is the right word. I think it'd be nationality. Yeah, right. Uh, because of the nationality could be people with dissimilar backgrounds. Sure. Uh, heritage is developing a new one together. Right. I mean, these people are all bonded by shared experience, a shared traumatic experience, you know. Yeah. So, and so what's their legal status? You know, do they need to create a new planet for XBs, for former board, perhaps? Who knows? It still bothers me that the, the, the discrimination issue of not wanting your people back. You know, there's a, there's a old line from the book of Joshua of uh, God's promise to Joshua of, I will not forget you nor forsake you. And what's happening with the XBs is not the promise. And yeah. it's like, that's just offensive that you should want your people back. And to the idea of going like, yeah, we don't like what happened to you. So we don't want you anymore. Well, that's just cruel. You know, that's also an American. Yeah, back to what Hugh says, they're the most hated beings, you know, sort of in the quadrant. Where do they go? They don't really have a home, do they? Uh, yeah. Well, again, it's there's no shortage of uh, analogies that this is, you know, or metaphors that this is for what's happening currently, and you know, pick pick the example for whether it's refugees or uh, other groups, other people who have struggled that can fit this, yeah. and especially as we look at how. Uh, reclamation works people with severed limbs um, that easily could have been Picard and it's amazing too that so many years after his assimilation as Locutus Picard is still learning mm -hmm. about the Borg it'd be wonderful you know and people deal with trauma in different ways and one method is it's partial denial even if they you know, say like no I've totally accepted what I've happened what happened to me I just never want to talk about it again right. or dwell on right. it because I want to go forward and well that does make sense it's still a form of denial yeah <laughs> um, as opposed to those who live trapped in the moment right okay that they can't move forward from it which is again a good U2 song but you know it does highlight that you know, one of the things that can happen with trauma of they are just constantly trapped there. Yeah, but you know, Picard is. It's great that he's able to see the good that is being done after this. You know, through the this project, showing what the Borg are underneath. Mm -hmm. They're victims. Yeah. Not monsters. And how long did it take Picard himself to realize that? Well, again, he didn't want to dwell on it because yeah. of, you know, it's like a 
Good, I'm free. Uh, we blew up that cube. Uh, I saved uh, humanity twice. <laughs> so. Right. You know, I'm imagining, um, and this wouldn't be very far-fetched, we talked about putting Dr. Gerardi on trial for murdering Bruce Maddox. Imagine putting an XB, a former Borg drone, on trial for crimes committed while he, w he or she was part of the collective. You know, the difference is uh, capacity, yeah. will, knowledge. Right. And, you know, Girardi seems to have all of those things. Yes. Motive, intent. And arguably a Borg drone does not. No. Yeah. Uh, unless we get a deeper look of what happened. Right. And also if there's going to be some weird connection to what happened in the last season of Discovery. Or With control. Yeah, you know, or if they're going in a different direction. Right. Because, uh, again, I mean, we are kind of mixing themes. Uh, Discovery had a mixed message of, like, is it AI bad? Like, they never really <clears throat> figured that out. <laughs> you know, like, they're... Star Trek normally has a message, and their message was muddled, and that might have been because they went through multiple showrunners right. in that season. Yeah, I mean, if Star, Star Trek's message on technology and exploration is usually so hopeful, mm -hmm. but now they seem to be throwing in with the, the science fiction adage that, oh, uh, technology and artificial intelligence are evil, and we see that in so many properties. You know, Terminator with Skynet, we see it in... But, but there was also the ultimate computer where they... Yeah. You know, so, again, they, they flirted with that. They did, you're right. Uh, and it's always humanity shall triumph, right? But again, that's because it's the positive story. Right. And again, if, if they're trying to do a long-winded way of saying, you know, bored drones or, or XBs or, like, if we finally take away cell phones from kids, you know, that... Uh, that can't be the message of this. Yeah, I wonder or, what the end game is here. Yeah, because again, technology, it's a tool. You know, it's like being able to drive from place to place is a great thing. If you drive on the sidewalk, you're a jerk mm -hmm. and you're endangering other people's yeah, lives. Right. So again, you're using the tool incorrectly right. and now you're dangerous. Right, there's still a human, human role there. Like. The technology itself is neither good nor evil. It's the person who uses it. Yeah. And again, that was part of the mixed message from Discovery last right, season. Right. Of which way are we going with this? Because yeah. that wasn't clear. Yeah. Uh, or muddled, at least. This time around, uh, are we going in the opposite direction? That we were dealing with fear? Because, you know, is. Is Q at work helping Picard realize this through dreams? Which again, I would, that would be good fan service and consistent with storytelling of what we've seen yeah. from from Q. Uh, I so hope we see Q at some point. That would be fantastic. It would be lovely. Uh, the ways that data has been used is not just like pandering to fans it's mm -hmm. actually meaningful and very sparingly too yeah it's been what twice i think just twice yeah and it was about you know uh picard dealing with what ha what's supposed to be, be happening and we haven't seen it since which again i think points to keel but we shouldn't speculate because that only leads to darkness <laughs> uh only a suffering well, let's, 
you know, this episode ends with them using a portal that was actually referenced in Star Trek Voyager, and that's cute little fan service. Uh, and then we get to uh, what I think is a really beautiful episode because it's so much of a character study of seeing Troy and Riker and their daughter. And uh, that's the, well, actually, before we get to there, let's talk about attempted murder. Oh, right. Okay, as, as the... Finishing off the impossible box. Yeah, yeah right. cause that, which is the instrumentality for attempted murder. Yes, Nerith, who tries to kill Soji after he gets the information from her. And this storyline, well, okay, speaking as a fan first, the storyline really didn't do a lot for me. I always found that the Nerith-Soji storyline was somewhat boring and it just kind of played out the way you expected. He seduces her, pretends to be in love with her, pretends to be conflicted, um, just so he can get the information from her. And once he does, he tries to kill her. And he looks torn about it because, oh, of course, maybe some of his feelings were genuine, uh, or maybe not. And he tells her his real name, supposedly, even. So, um, so I don't know, just, I, I would say, narratively, I didn't find it too satisfying. Maybe it was necessary, but um, definitely not surprising. A little generic, perhaps. Uh, but then, you know, we have secrets upon secrets as he tries to kill her. So... Yeah, there's the spy story, but the, the Romulan angle could be going just a little too deep with Romulan paranoia. Uh, you know, because I think back to Balance of Terror. Yeah. And, you know, again, that was like true Soviet Union yeah. type bad guys. Right. And... Uh, it's funny that Romulans and Klingons could both be stand-ins for the Soviet Union, depending on the story that you're True, telling. right. Or um, sometimes maybe People's Republic of China. It, yeah. it can vary. But again, adversary role until you start to understand them. And the only way to defeat an adversary is to not have them be an adversary anymore. Make them your friend is sort of the Star Trek way. Like, understand them because... Monster is not always a monster, and an enemy is not always an enemy, which we get from Hugh, you know, who actually shows us the Borg aren't all evil. Nope. That was a very powerful episode. Yeah. And, uh, a lot, lot to unpack there. But, uh, yeah, that's totally attempted murder with the impossible box. No question, yeah. Yeah, it just, uh, you know, the hot Romulan with the creepy sister who's a little too touchy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, I don't know why that's a thing in pop culture now. Yeah. Uh, I just... Not okay. Uh, not okay. So I think that wraps up The Impossible Box for us. A very strong episode, actually. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, we have some of the Star Trek hallmarks, the exploration of character, uh, looking at a, an adversary in a different point of view now that the Borg XBs... They're not monsters, you know, they are victims, and maybe, you know, they deserve help as well. Uh, a lot of good stuff here, and then we start to pull back the curtain more on the overall mystery of Soji and her sister Dodge. We learn a little bit more there, so we're heading towards some kind of climax. Yep, and it's plugging along, and it's kind of at a comfortable speed that it's, we're able to be in the world and enjoy the world 
but it's um, you know some of the episodes could have moved faster but um, and I, I still don't know how I could totally feel about uh, our Romulan elf warrior <laughs> Elnor yeah I mean I like the I like the actor but the long hair and the sword play it's like I don't We've, um, again, Star Trek 2009, we saw Romulans using swords. Yes. Okay, on the drill platform. Right. So it's like, okay, so it's not completely unprecedented. And Klingons used them left and right, too. Yes. Um, uh, and this is like a kind of a religious nun set. <clears throat> so, I mean, I, I don't have a problem with it, but it's just, it's, it feels weird. It's different. It's a little different, for sure. So, let's get to... So we the Penthe? Yeah, so we get a deeper look at uh, what happened between Agnes and Commodore L. Yes. And I, I, my two senses, that was a non-consensual mind meld. Uh, that O did not ask for permission to touch Agnes, did not ask for permission to initiate a mind meld. She just did it. Yeah. And that's creepy. Uh, so there, that is a form of battery. Yes, uh, you know we we hear that theory raised in the medical context, medical cases where um, you know people have a right to privacy, a right to control who touches them or who does things to their body, which stems from the constitutional right to privacy, um, which was a right read in by the Supreme Court. Um, during uh, some of the Warren Court years, and it had its origin, at least, in some of the criminal procedure cases, that people have a right to privacy in their own home, um, in certain places that has been extended sometimes to a hotel room that they rent, even sometimes to a phone booth that they mm -hmm. may be in. So, <laughs> oh, uh, flashbacks to Crim Perot. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. So, you know, that it, we extend that to this particular context that Agnes Gerardi would have a right to control what someone does with her body. So if someone lays hands on her without her permission, that is technically a battery and a tort. You know, she could sue for some sort of form of damages. And it clearly has an effect because she throws up. Yeah, right. So it's it's not like it. She, she didn't enjoy the mind meld. Let's say no, yeah. no, that was non consensual, and she immediately threw up her lunch. Yeah. So thanks, Commodore O, for that lovely afternoon. Right. Yeah. She was, Agnes was chilling yeah. by a tree, having, listening to music, and, boom, she's throwing up, and. Um, yeah, and it's the trauma of seeing a cute woman throw up. So, yeah, thank you for that. <laughs> <sighs> but it does bring us to XBs just being executed by the overly touchy Romulan sister. And uh, we do have issues of she's trying to get Hugh to say where Picard went. So this is duress. Yes. And threatening to kill people and then just starting to kill people for the sake of it that's just messed up yeah. and you know this feeds back into what you were saying earlier Josh uh, they so the Romulans just summarily execute firing squad style a number of XBs and I'm trying to count them but it looks like seven or eight or so yeah 
<clears throat> now, right now, imagine for a moment if the legal status of those XBs were that they were still considered citizens of their respective worlds. This would be seen as an act of war mm -hmm. by those other governments. But we have no one claiming these um, these beings, so I think this feeds again into our idea that the XBs are really more their own, uh, you know, their own people, government, nation, their own group. Yeah, now here's my thing. Murder's murder. And yeah. uh, you don't get a free pass at it. Yep. And again, evil Romulan touchy sister. Uh, just not okay. Uh, though, though she spares him because he's a Federation citizen somehow, and we don't know the backstory there. Yeah, because how did he get citizenship? <clears throat> right. Uh, so there is a way for XBs to still get citizenship or return to their governments, maybe. And I mean, while he is humanoid, I don't know if he's truly human. Exactly. Yeah, we don't know where he came from, where he was assimilated from, if he was basically born into assimilation, because that that happened. Um, so with the non you know consecutive uh, consensual touching oh well, yeah. well you know the uh, they, they kind of don't follow all their own canon when it comes to borg true because yeah. when we maurice hurley created them and you know the writing staff was learning as they went um yes. kind of what the rules were yeah kind of adding the zombie theme to <clears throat> yes cybernetic space zombies so we now see agnes starting to lose it and I want to go home right now. Yeah. Um, and that's called guilt. <laughs> uh, because you murdered a dude. And now you realized, oh crap, what have I become? So we get divert, uh, duress is bad. Uh, and she's a murderer. So. Agnes is having a very bad trip, I'd say. Yeah. Um, and chocolate cake doesn't solve everything. No. Um, it, red velvet does do lots of good things, and it is super tasty. And, and you know what? Maybe we should get some later. <laughs> However, that's how tired we are. Yes. <laughs> oh wow, pizza would be good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, now we get to hanging out with, you know, seeing what happened to Riker and Picard, uh, Troy. And, God, that's sweet. Because, uh, you know, since Riker grew up in Alaska, yes. yeah, I felt like, oh, did, did they settle down in Alaska? And it's like, because the cabin looks very... It did look like it, yeah. Uh, no, that's just the style he likes, and it fit in well yeah. with, with the planet they settled on. The last frontier, Alaska. Yep. Yeah. And uh, so it's a very Riker house that's really tripped out with a great security system. And being a, I don't know if he if he's on active reserve as a captain or an admiral, uh, but he was at least in command of one starship, probably more, since his daughter references, excuse me, since Troy references starships and talking about their late right. son's dad, right. uh, who did like dinosaurs, so instantly liked the guy already. <laughs> uh, but you know, we do learn that. He had a rare disease that was a form of MS, and 
they needed uh, part of the cure would have come from being like incubated in a neural net yeah which those weren't allowed anymore yeah which gives rise to the idea uh, could there be exceptions made to the ban humanitarian exceptions you know we hear about humanitarian exceptions for things like prison sentences or execution sentences things like that could there have been a petition made by um, Riker and Troy to lift the ban on synthetics for the purpose of saving their child I don't know oh and here's my two my two cents on that hey remember the time I saved the civilization from getting assimilated, assimilated? Yeah. yeah I'd say you owe me one right yeah. if I'm Riker right? yeah or or how about this other time I saved civilization mm. let's go down the list right yeah solid you owe me dude as kirk says in star trek generations i, I figured the universe kind of owes me one yeah, yeah. you know kind of do yeah kind of do because we, we're not all dead because of me right so man up uh d don't be a schmuck yeah we're interested we're introduced to the great character of kestra uh, which i adore the fact that their daughter is named after Troy's late sister, yeah. which again, n nice way to do deep cuts for lifelong fans that doesn't detract from the fact that this is the first thing you're watching. Right. Uh, and at this time when Picard appears to be going to a home again, uh, like the episode Family in season four of Next Generation, uh, when he's going back to his home in Labar, France, he is accosted, sort of. By his nephew Rene, who's sort of proposed, you know, just sort of spying on him, and Picard says, "Oh, it's a it's a brigand or, a, you know, a road a thief sort of." And here we have Castro with her bow and arrow out, sort of hunting in a way, um, and she immediately greets them with a bow and arrow pointed at them. And the, uh, you know, her her late brother wrote stories and came up with fictitious languages. Right. So she's wearing. Uh, facial markings of this imaginary race that they came up with. Yeah. Um, he's a little sloppy and traumatizing her with talking about data and uh, he, he could have been more mindful. Right. Uh, Picard makes a couple missteps. I think that that's fair to say. Um, you know, I'll, I'll say here a couple thoughts as, as a fan for a moment wearing the fan hat. Um, I there's something that's been very off to me about the entire series so far and I am enjoying it and there, it's a great story but there, it, it hasn't felt sort of comfortable or just right to me and I, I re I'm realizing what it is really is because we're seeing all of these characters that we know and love but they're no longer in Starfleet and most you know Star Trek uh, episodes um, movies it's all been about the Federation and Starfleet and we see and get to know the Federation and Starfleet through these point-of-view characters. Well, now we've got the point-of-view characters back, but we don't really have Starfleet. We don't see them in uniform, on ships, on missions. Now they're really out for sort of these personal, um, you know, personal quests. Uh, and it's just very different. Uh, I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying, you know, it is different, and it's certainly taken at least me some getting used to. It, it is different because... No Star Trek series has been like this. this right. Is a, this is a big character study. You know, like, what's the 
character out of uniform. Right. And because there's more to uh, life than just one part of your life. Yeah. And, you know, I think life's a journey and this is part of the journey. Um, but it is so damn nice to see these characters again. These old friends. Yeah. You know, I, I've heard it described by folks back in the 80s and 90s, and I certainly felt this way. Every time there was an original series movie that came out, mm -hmm. it felt like we were getting to visit again with old friends. Mm -hmm. People that with whom we had sort of grown up, uh, people we cared about, um, you know, people we'd grown with, and it really felt like, oh, hey... How's Scotty doing this time? What's Sulu up to? Chekhov, and of course the big three, Bones, Spock, McCoy, Uhura, all of them. And it, I'm getting that feeling now too. We're seeing these old friends and seeing them together and it's, it's, it's wonderful. Uh, I, a point on um, Thad, you know, the, the child, the son that passes away, there's that moment where we see the, a brief glimpse of a picture of Picard holding the baby Thad um, and, you know, Thad's got the biggest smile on his face, and, you know, it's hard for me to even think about that without getting choked up, because when I saw it, it was just very moving, and you see this happy child, uh, and you know that his life was cut short, um, and Picard also just looks so happy and proud, and I, I think um, many people who are parents uh, could probably relate to this, but... It was just very moving, and Star Trek is, you know, believe it or not, it's fictional, uh, but it's still very, very powerful. You know, these characters about whom we care so deeply have suffered such loss, and we suffer that with them. You know, we, we feel that. I saw one article that talked, talked about how Star Trek is not afraid to let characters age, and that was very prevalent in, well, actually, I think throughout the entire series. Yeah. When you look at the failed pilot of the cage... Not like that did it was again a cerebral journey with Captain Pike and yeah. uh, but that and you it, see, right you uh, see him old in the wheelchair yeah. uh, well prior to the wheelchair thing it's you know he was going through that midlife crisis yeah uh, the original series movies were about aging Star Trek two yeah the theme and, and three and four I mean absolutely you know just with this um, again. Uh, it's like, oh, you guys are past your prime. Well, no, we still got it. Right. <laughs> Buckle up, son. You're about to learn a lot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like that. Um, so, like, but that was different with, with those stories because, like, they were still, while they were older, they knew what they were doing. They were still in the service. Right. And, like, they weren't afraid to say, like, no, this is the way it is, kid. Yeah. And uh, no, no, none of our beloved characters is wearing a uniform anymore. Yeah. You know? Which again, that is different because where this breaks the norm of Star Trek is the optimistic future. Starfleet is is used by the Federation as a as a means for good. Yeah, and we really haven't seen that, uh, yeah. and not that we won't, because um, again, we haven't seen Captain Worf. And the Enterprise, because um, hopefully that's still in service and he's right. still the captain. Sure. Because um, Klingons live a long time. And because, again, that, that would be pretty sweet. Because, um, again, the Big E should make an appearance. That would be fantastic if we saw 
assuming the Enterprise E is still around, or is it the next Enterprise now? Who knows? Yeah, if they're on F. Yeah, they okay, ships normal. Uh, our aircraft carriers generally last fifty years. Mm -hmm. Okay, so when we make those investments, they last a while. You know, frigates and destroyers might aren't fifty-year vessels, or at least probably aren't fifty-year vessels. Um, I'm sure somebody in the Navy will correct me on that, but I don't think we have 50-year-old destroyers in service. I've been wrong before. Uh, that said, uh, they can't make capital ships like that and have them last 20 years and like, well, we need a new one. Right. Okay, it's just... Right, I mean, we see um, the USS Excelsior debuts in Star Trek Three. And then the next generation happens. I think it's 77 years after the original, you know, series, and the Excelsior class has become the workhorse of Starfleet. So mm -hmm. that has become just a fantastic ship for Starfleet, and is the main ship um, that we often see in the next generation. Whenever another ship has to come in, it's often an Excelsior class. Yeah. How many did they, did they make, and how long were they making them? Right. A long time. Yeah. It's like we we made F fours, uh, the the. Phantoms, not the Corsairs, for a long time. Right. And every service used them. So, is it something like that? Um, and again, our, the look of our aircraft carriers, Nimitz to Ford, really don't look that different. Right, right. Uh, but, again, this episode was more introspective. I mean, the... It was. Not a lot of action. No. You know, very character-driven. Oh, and, and it's also a reminder that uh, both Captain Riker, or if he's an admiral, don't know which, and Commander Troy, are smart, good officers. They've pieced to, together what's happening in under a minute each. Yes, <laughs> they, they know each other so well. And... Uh, uh, like when she, when Soshi does the head tilt, it's like, yep. And Riker looks right her, it's like, yeah, I yeah. know exactly what you right, are. Right, right. Um, Troy's, Troy always does a good come to Jesus talk with Picard of. She, you know, she's always been his conscience. Yeah. You know, you, know, you be you. And um, it works well. Yeah. Uh, it works very well. And that, that house does look so awesome. Yeah, I mean, well, I think this is the scout leader in you talking about yeah. the, out the great outdoors and sort of roughing it, and living in a cabin. Yeah, I do like the cabin look, even though I, I'm, I'm on the Sea Scout side of things and do prefer boats. But yeah, right. this thing, the, the mountain cabin look is always gorgeous. And it's like, yeah, I wouldn't mind one of those. Um, well, I might do. Uh, I am fond of Lake Tahoe, so yeah. There's, there's a reason why I like this stuff. Uh, that is a uh, that baby picture is super adorable. Yeah, it it really gets me kind of choked up seeing that. And they do such a nice job of de aging uh, Patrick Stewart in the you know the, the photos that they have back and forth. Um, and for those who may not realize, we we have the episode playing as we're discussing this um helping us to stay focused in our fatigue here yeah because it was it's been a long day yeah. <laughs> it's been a very long day yeah. uh, so again we do learn the uh issue of 
Agnes does try to come clean, but she's having a really tough time admitting to what she did. Uh, the the uh, blue chewable tracking device that she ingests, she figures out a way to neutralize it, but it puts her into a coma. Right. Which was better than her committing suicide, so yes. yay. She's trying to redeem herself, perhaps. Yeah, yeah but it's just... You didn't need to kill Mannix. <laughs> yeah, didn't have to. No, that's just... Because uh, what's the end game with that? What's the end game of just offing them? You're too dangerous to live. Yeah, right. But the same token, so is she. You know, so she's got to think in terms of that, of I'm expendable. Uh, yeah, I... The, the other thing that bothers me about her turn is to go from this is my life's work to I'm willing to murder a guy that I've slept with is pretty extreme. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's just, that's nuts. Um, yeah, she did a pretty pretty quick heel turn or villain turn. Mm-hmm. And her behavior after again the you know her Allison Pills acting is great because you know you can see little tremors and her physically looking uncomfortable. Uh, but it does seem a little. It was this just creeping up on her because you know, she's not a killer and she murdered somebody. Right. Right. You know, narratively, it's it's going to be interesting to see how this all finishes because we are led to believe that there's some grand conspiracy that led in the Mars um, synthetic attack, the 9-11 here, that led to so many bad things and the shutting down of the Romulan relief mission. And there was some sort of conspiracy because the synths could not have just gone bad on their own. So what caused them to do this? And then we learn that there's a conspiracy within Starfleet. Commodore O and Zat Vash have infiltrated Earth at high levels. Um, so that can't be good. They must be evil. But then we learn from Commodore O that, no, if we allow synthetic life to exist, many bad things will happen. So are they on the side of the angels and we're the ones that are sort of just flailing in the dark? Yeah, but that takes out free will from the equation. Mm -hmm. And also it's uh, profiling of the synthetic life that they're automatically going to decide to wipe us out. Profiling. Right. <laughs> you know, that's... That's not good. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's not acceptable. Right. Uh, you, you know, we, we, we get an interesting legal issue um, in, in sort of a time of war or conflict, too. When, you know, Hugh is spared in the, er, in the earlier episode because he's a citizen of the Federation. In this episode, he sees several XBs get executed summarily by the Romulans and decides, all right, we're going to take this cube back. And then that creepy sister overhears and says, okay, now that you've said that, um, that is like, you know, an act of aggression. And now we get to kill you. So the one thing keeping Hugh alive was that he was kind of with the program. And the moment he gets against the program, now his life is forfeit. Is it that clean? You know, should it be? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Because there's that wonderful concept of due process. You right. don't get it. Hey, I don't agree with what you're doing. Well, I kill you now. I mean, 
you know, that's I've been listening to a wonderful podcast about the Cold War, and that's the sort of thing that Stalin and Khrushchev did. Uh, even though that kind of went uh, again, Maltov and uh, Benet or some one of the secret police guys that the Soviet Union had under Stalin of just making people disappear in the middle of the night. And again, the Romulans are emulating that pretty forcefully. Sort of like the episode, The Drumhead, you know, for the yeah. next generation. Uh, worse. <laughs> yes, worse, I would agree. Uh, no one was just getting shot in the back of the head in that. Um, and that's what Romulans, these Romulans are doing. And that's not good. Right. Uh, God, is that a, do they go to Alaska to film this, or is it... It's beautiful outdoorsy stuff, that's for sure. Yeah, it's just... Let's have some pizza in the wood fireplace, and there's the head tilt. Yeah. Um, and uh, little known fact, Jonathan Frank's daughter was a sea scout. <laughs> and Jonathan Frakes is still rocking that mustache and beard here. Well, it's very manly. The beard, yeah. It's powerful. Yeah. It's just, you know, there are those who, like, if you, you know, you can look like a kid still. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, that is just rugged manliness. Yeah. Uh, and he, again, another fan moment, he leaves open the idea when he says, well, I'm, I'm just on reserve. Mm -hmm. It would take something really big to bring me back. Oh, okay, well, could we see Riker return? Yeah, a Riker Troy show? Or just see them swoop in to save us at the last moment in the yeah. finale or at some point in the future? Yeah, um, that'd be convenient. But again, so would Worf and Enterprise E. But, um, you know, they can, again, they left the service to try to keep their son alive. Yeah. So, them going back, or him going back, because um, that looks like a happy life. And I, now, and there, it's not like they're in the middle of nowhere. It might be remote, but there's still like a community with others and. Right. Right. So it, yeah, we're left to wonder a little bit about what pl what sort of planet is Nepenthe. Um, which you know, every time I hear that, I keep thinking of Rurapenthe. Yeah, know, the, yeah, same. The ice prison planet of the um, the Klingons. Um, but the this planet we are told has some regenerative properties. It grows plants very quickly. Uh, there is some sort of native population. It, it looks like like Alaska in summer. Seems like uh, the galactic equivalent of like a retirement home or something. Uh, no, it's different than that. It's like a small town in Alaska. Yeah, right. That you, you get your cabin, you get to have a little bit of property and live you know, in peace, right? Yeah, and anyone in any age could do that if you had enough money. Yeah. Um, and you didn't want to be near other people, but um, except Captain Crandall, I guess. Yeah, uh, I I want that small town. Yeah. Um, do you? <laughs> um, but that cabin does look pretty awesome. <laughs> so. Yep. Um. That said, uh, not a lot of legal issues with this, other than. No, it's a very like heartwarming type of episode. You know, I I mentioned the one issue that jumped out at me was uh, what if. Troy and Riker, you know, sued the Federation um, to try to lift a ban on synthetics in order to save the life of their child. 
certainly a very sympathetic case. Mm -hmm. I think that wouldn't have to become a full-blown lawsuit. They could probably apply and um, try to push some buttons and talk to some people. But it would be interesting if they ever did try to litigate something like that. Uh, I mean, we're, what we're talking about is a ban that came down from the Federation Council, as I recall, right mm -hmm. after the Mars attack. Then followed up by treaties. Right, so how do you challenge that, you know? Yeah, it's just fear-mongering type reaction. It would be difficult to challenge it, you know, if it's just an act of the council. Yeah, but is it, reasonably, or is it rationally based? You know, if this those isn't... Are good, those are good and appropriate questions. You know, this isn't like, hey, catalytic converters are bad, mm -hmm. so we want to we want cars to, pol to pollute less. Right. You know, this is... We don't want computers to think right. and develop personalities. Right. So, you know, the legal standard uh, for challenging rules like this, typically at least, is, um, you know, let's take a look at the rule. Is it rationally related to the purpose which it is supposed to, you know, attain or serve? And is it narrowly tailored also? Um, yeah. Out, outright bans generally aren't. Right. Is there some less oppressive way to achieve the same goal? Yeah. This isn't like saying... Uh, let's, let's pick on gun rights. So, we have a horrible shooting. So, we say like, hey, let's uh, let's not sell armor-piercing bullets anymore. So there, there's a ban. And um, let's not have uh, fully automatic weapons. Okay. Yep. Now, if those people start jumping up and down and screaming, that's a ban. No, you can still have your guns. You just don't get a gun that can kill a room full of people in 10 seconds. Right. That's an issue that has come up before and been litigated. Um, and, and actively still, because you don't... Deer aren't armor-plated. Why do you want to shoot police officers and saying that you want to be able to overthrow the government? Right. Those are reasons not to own a weapon. So, but that's not what happened here. This was, we're going to ban all artificial life. And in doing so, also sentenced to death anyone that has this relatively rare condition that um, that sad Riker Troy um, had. Yeah, it'd be like, you know what, um, math offends my religion, therefore... Uh, we don't want pharmaceutical companies to use math anymore in coming up with treatments of drugs, so everything should just be holistic. Yeah. Okay. Good luck with the magic dirt and trying to heal people with complex diseases. Uh, no. <laughs> it's just, that's asinine. How many controversial things can we say here, Josh? <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Yeah. This is what happens when I'm tired and punchy. Yeah. It's like, no, we, you don't that you have to have rational plans right. and you can't just swing wildly with let's ban an entire category like we don't ban cars because right. we're trying to cut down on pollution this may be me you know i'm thinking of this probably because we have conducted a uh, sort of a uh, petition for guardianship hearing today at san diego comic fest but in looking at this living situation that Riker and Troy have with Kestra, their daughter. One thing I wonder, you know, Kestra is clearly raising a loving family, a beautiful home, a lot of fun outdoors. Uh, but are there any other kids her age around? 
Does she have any friends? Any people that she can play with and just roam around? Uh, we don't see anyone. Yeah. Maybe there are, but we, uh, we don't see that she has much of a peer group. Now, that does look like that'd be the unfun part of her childhood. Yeah. And, well, there are the situations of parents going, wouldn't it be great if we live in this small town and we have our farm and our land and we don't have to deal with people anymore? Well, that's cute for you. What's going to happen to your kids? Right. Okay, you don't want them to have lives? Or you you want them to be the last generation that they won't marry and have kids of their own? They're going to, you know, follow you into the grave? That sounds lovely. <laughs> not selfish at all. Right. Um, I'm not saying that's the situation here because clearly she interacts and she's a smart... You can tell she's the daughter of Riker and Troy. Yes. Because she has qualities of both parents. A little precocious, inquisitive, curious, uh, very smart. And stand, will stand up. <laughs> yes. And I think that um, we see a bit of her um, maybe loneliness. Uh, I'm not sure if that's the right word for it, but the way she latches on to Soji so quickly and effectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like she's got a big sister now. She does want people near her age group, which is, again, normal. Um, yeah, it's that's a normal human reaction for young people. Uh, that they want. Uh, William Manninger wrote about that in the handbook for skippers used in for Sea Scout leaders back in 1939 about stages of human development and wanting acceptance from peer groups is something that's normal for kids to want. And she's clearly in that age group where that's what she wants. Yeah, we're coming up on the scene where Hugh dies. You know, it does raise interesting defense of others because uh, we we do have the sword versus phaser fight. The Kawat melee, yeah. We don't see them carrying distance weapons, just melee weapons. Yeah, yeah. That's the you gotta get in close for that. Yeah, I yeah. Hugh's death really bothered me. Yeah, I. I've um, talked with people about that. I understand narratively why they did it, you know, story-wise, but it just hurt as a fan to see that because I felt there could still be many stories told about Hugh and him trying to save the XBs and leading, you know, being a leader of the XB movement. Uh, we could see him reunited again with Geordie LaForge, his best friend, mm-hmm. um, former best friend at least. There were, Hopefully just, they stayed in touch. Yeah. I just felt that there were more stories to tell. They didn't have to kill him. I mean, I think the purpose in killing him is that, well, now we learn that another XB is needed to activate the queen cell. So he summons seven of nine. Or, you know, he gives um, the distress beacon for the Fenris Rangers, which we assume will be seven of nine. And had Hugh lived, then I guess they would have been able to do that, to bring in seven of nine like that. Do you think she transported herself out or something was up with that i that's because she drew her weapon like like getting beamed out of there was an inconvenience to her so yeah maybe someone else did take her transport her away uh jugular Uh, get attention to detail that he is bleeding out yeah 
Um, but again, this is, you know, the end of the 21st century. They should be able to fix that. Right. If he had some medical equipment, um, one would be able to patch him up really quickly, at least yeah. stop the bleeding. Yeah, because again, knife first jugular, bad. Uh, they're on a board cube. Lots of technology around, and if there's some medical apparatus or some medical tools, yeah, they could save him. Yeah, I, I mean, that does mean keeping keeping him from bleeding out. Yeah. <laughs> so. I mean, I, I look at this and I think, well, Star Trek is Star Trek. You know, no one is dead forever. We saw that certainly in Star Trek Discovery. They brought back uh, Dr. Culber, which, you know, was a shocker. Mm -hmm. And also, like in the comic world, no one is dead forever. Unless you're Uncle Ben. Yeah, right. Uh... But I'm hoping um, Uncle Ben actually was brought back a few times, too, in some uh, Star uh, Spidey uh, comics. Yeah, yeah but, but there was the Bucky role, too. But... Yeah, Bucky as well, and, you know, Jason Todd has come back. I mean, people who were once gone have come back. I'm, as a fan, I would love to see Hugh come back still, but who knows. Yeah, okay, but, but then you can't cheapen death. Right. Okay, because then the sacrifice is really... It's meaningless. Yeah. yeah. So there's got to be a reason for it. Sure. Uh... Yeah, as we look at Agnes, again, her uh, pills acting is great in this because the slight tremors, the there's the subtlety of looking freaked out. Okay, we see her throw up for the second time. Yeah. In the same episode. So she's presented as a good person who's trying to do right but ends up having to do bad things very bad things to try to get to the end goal of doing right i wonder when they casted her they asked her can you throw up <laughs> we really need you to throw up a couple of times are you good at that you know that's exactly the type of barfing we needed right sort of like jurassic park the kids make sure they can <laughs> scream loud enough right because that's what they're going to be doing most of the time you know mr Roddy, you're going to be throwing up a few times we need you to make that convincing we're going to need uh, you to do something very unladylike. Oh, what? It's you thinking, we need you to throw up. <laughs> well, I, remember, oh, I... <laughs> I recall the stories Marina Sirtis has told about, you know, her character Troy notoriously loves chocolate and chocolate sundaes, but she herself actually is not a big chocolate fan. So sometimes when they film the episodes of her eating all this chocolate, she's sort of putting it in her mouth and then when the camera take is done she spits it out to the side in another container and she's saying oh yeah this is very glamorous uh, for an actress right but that's what's what she did to kind of uh you know make the scene work and get through it you know with troy on screen it, it makes me do think that uh no women are in cat suits in this uh that's series. true that's actually really nice right i, I think the actor yeah I don't, I don't think it went as far as being a condition of them coming back but Many actors have commented, at least in the um, media that we fans have received, how, and how relieved they were not to be wearing these tight, these uniforms again, or these jumpsuits, or you know, um, these they could dress more like sort of regular people, if you will. Mm -hmm. Not that I, again, the the uniforms were fine, but like Seven of Nine's cat suit, <laughs> not very practical. No, it's like was this for agility? Like yeah. why why did you need the cat suit? Right. Um, and again, nobody here is wearing that. Uh, all the clothing looks practical. Right, just like their average folks. Yeah, comfortable. Yes. Uh, that it, it's not like everyone's in dad jeans, right. but you know, it, it, everything looks comfortable. Uh, 
But yes, so with that, we are, you know, from the common carrier uh, issue of, uh, um, you know, the, the captain going to go find Picard, that does kind of go above the normal uh, uh, common carrier responsibilities. He's but going above and beyond. I don't think we get that service from Greyhound or Amtrak. You know? No, no, he's he's no, no, he's my fare. I'm going to go get him. Yeah, <laughs> he's you know, a dodging uh, Borg attacks and yeah. You know. That's actually um, that's actually really nice. So good loyalty. <laughs> but again, he is Starfleet uh, to his core. So, lots of interesting stuff this episode. I like how it's shot, candlelight. Right. There's lots of good things. A lot of great story moments, character moments. Not as heavy on the legal issues this time, though. Yeah. Agreed. Um, absolutely agreed. But again, it's wonderful to have Star Trek and we can talk about it. Yes. And uh, how great would it be to be able to activate shields to defend your home and have a home defense system like that? Huh? Yeah, and to scan for cloaking devices. Cloaking devices, and, and my goodness. Well, again, because these, it wasn't like, we're going to live in a cabin in the woods. Mm-hmm. We're not roughing it. No, they have replicators and mm-hmm. tech. Right. And uh, they're clearly self-sufficient. And, uh, yeah, I wouldn't mind a nice three-day weekend in that cabin but that's, sure god <laughs> or a whole week you know retreat or something and go maybe Ooh. go fish at the pond or lake or whatnot legal geeks retreat it's like yeah. so we got a pizza oven yeah let's, <laughs> let's recreate this episode i don't i don't think i'd mind <laughs> we have a pizza oven some bottles of wine yeah. and uh we're gonna go do legal analysis about <laughs> star trek for a weekend yeah i'm completely on board with we'll that. binge watch it all right it's delightful <laughs> Ah, come home refreshed and ready to go do discovery. So, uh, the legal step, not the TV show. Um, <laughs> but that would be fine too. Yeah. So, with that, uh, Steve, this is nice to actually record in person. Absolutely. And uh, while we can watch this and almost do a pseudo commentary, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's very refreshing. A legal, legal and fan commentary. <laughs> so yes, uh, wonderful to be able to do this. Everyone, thank you for tuning in. Uh, as we've said before, uh, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google, wherever you happen to enjoy your podcasts. We have a Patreon that does have some additional content uh, posted. And uh, check that out. We just do one flat rate of $5 to be of counsel and uh there's there's goodies there and everyone stay geeky stay geeky america